0: and we're back with another episode of the anarchist experience episode 210 aka season 3 episode 30 uh, coming at you this week as always i'm your host mr rich e rich uh another solo show uh mc's out taking care of some family business uh, so just me in the seat this week and you know what that means Uh, Another edition of Richie Rich Reads the News. Uh, Also no call-in numbers, nothing like that. So let's just jump right into it because it's a a busy weekend outside of the anarchist experience. And I just, I got to get this done to get something for you guys. So headlines. uh, Capitalism, a.k.a. self-ownership, is the only moral economic system. Headline. Disturbing cases show the U.S. government is still conducting secret experiments and we are the lab rats a headline. Can the government really print all the money at once a headline? Do you pay red light camera tickets? Well, you're in the minority a headline, <clears throat> excuse me, 12 year old Michigan boy fills neighborhoods potholes because the government won't a headline plastic bag bans won't help the environment, but they'll continue, but, but they'll cause more foodborne illnesses. Uh, headline, government-mandated paid leave programs don't work. Mom charged with crime because her three-year-old son couldn't hold it and peed outside. And finally, headline, uh, true community and false community. All right, and I kind of pre-curated these before we got started, so let's... And I, I because NC wasn't here, we can do some more longer-form articles um, since... <laughs> since he has a tendency to lose focus, uh, if it's more than a handful of paragraphs, but I don't. So here we go. Uh, headline capitalism, AKA self-ownership is the only moral economic system. Um, and real quick, I pulled this one because after, uh, hosting, uh, co-hosting free talk live, uh, last week, Sunday was it the uh, 31st of March, whatever it happened to be. Um, know we we get into discussions of what is anarchy and who is a real anarchist and what term should we all use uh and i've uh, again always hyphenated mine uh because as far as you know the the economic structure um you know i i accept the term capitalism um because to me it's you know it's the the free market open system even though even some of the people who advocate for free market economic systems won't accept the term um I just whatever, man. So call me an ANCAP if you want to Uh, say that it's immoral for me to be a capitalist and an anarchist and part both. So here we go. The only moral economic system with all the turn that over to the government too, so someone else will have to provide it for you proposals that have come from Democratic presidential hopefuls already. Candidates are actually being asked if they are socialist or capitalist. Bernie Sanders, who has called for economic rights guarantees to be treated as constitutional rights, admits being a socialist. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who may want even more people to live at everyone else's expense, is on the same bandwagon. Capitalism is an ideology of capital. The most important thing is the concentration of capital and to seek and maximize profits. Consequently, capitalism is irredeemable. However, other candidates pr- proposing or supporting very similar changes have claimed they are modified capitalists. Uh, Elizabeth Warren has said, I am a capitalist to my bones, but i believe in markets. What I don't believe in is theft. Along the same line, she has said, I love what markets can do. I love what functioning economies can do. They are what make us rich. They are what create opportunity. But only fair markets, markets with rules. Markets without rules is about the rich take it all, and that's what's gone wrong in America. Kamala Harris offered a similar complaint, that the rules aren't applying equally to all people. Joe Biden asks, What happened to a moral responsibility, to a moral capitalism? Beto O'Rourke followed up his claim to be a capitalist with, Having said that, it's clearly an imperfect, unfair, unjust, and racist capitalist economy. Uh, unfortunately for these candidates and for American voters if uh, and for Americans, if voters don't understand better, everyone relies on false assumptions about markets and governments. Senator Sanders fails to see that his call for more positive rights to things, from education to health care, must violate Americans' negative rights, prohibitions laid out against others, especially government, to prevent unwanted intrusion. The Declaration of Independence, echoing John Locke, asserts that all have unalienable rights, including liberty, and that our government's central purpose is to defend those negative rights, which is further reinforced in our Bill of Rights. Each citizen can enjoy them without infringing on anyone else's rights. Negative rights impose on others only the obligation not to invade or interfere. But when the government creates new positive rights extracting the resources to pay for them necessarily takes away others' unalienable rights. That is, you cannot add new positive rights to existing negative rights. You can only do so by destroying some of the negative rights that define the idea that became America. AOC, as she is now typically called, shows that she learned things that contradict what she should have learned in her economics major. She subscribes to what Marx intended in naming capitalism, making it seem that the owners of capital gain and others are hurt. But capitalism is better defined as a system of private ownership of resources, including one's labor, not simply ownership of capital, coordinated by solely voluntary arrangements. Private property prevents the physical invasion of a person's life, their liberty, or their property without their consent. By preventing such invasions, private property is an irreplaceable defense against aggression by the strong against the weak. No one is allowed to be a predator by violating others' rights. In such a system, capitalists need the voluntary consent of laborers in their arrangement, preventing capitalists from exploiting laborers. In Herbert Spencer's words... "'Far from being, as some have alleged, "'an advocacy of the claims of the strong against the weak, "'capitalism is much more an insistence "'that the weak shall be guarded against the strong. "'Elizabeth Warren's supposed endorsement of markets, "'but opposition to markets without rules is senseless. "'There are no markets without rules in capitalism.' The core rule is that of private property, which requires arrangements to be voluntary, which in turn rules out the possibility of the theft she supposedly objects to. If there is theft or fraud that allows it, that represents a government failure to defend someone's property rights, or a piecemeal violation of equal property rights by government, neither of which justifies still more government intervention to fix, unless it is to better defend private property rights now being violated or stop violating them itself. And Kamala Harris's complaint that the rules aren't applying equally to all people is subject to the same criticism. Joe Biden's What Happened to Moral Responsibility to Moral Capitalism reflects a similar confusion. The most basic moral or ethical basic for any human relationship is to not violate others' rights, which Cicero called giving each his own over two millennia ago. Or, as Adam Smith wrote in the Theory of Moral Sentiments, The man who barely abstains from violating either the person or the estate or the reputation of his neighbors does everything which his equals can, proper, can with proprietary force him to do, or which they can punish him for not doing. We can often fulfill all the rules of justice by sitting still and doing nothing. Yet Biden seems to think that policies that require the violation of unwilling Americans' rights is far more moral than the one that does not. Beto O'Rourke's endorsement of capitalism, then described as an imperfect, unfair, unjust, and racist, seems to reflect a similar view, but mainly refle- reflects serious confusion. What American would endorse something that meets his description of a capitalism unless he was a sadist? For each of these candidates, even a rudimentary understanding of private property rights and voluntary arrangements eviscerates their evaluations of capitalism and sweeps away any reliable basis for their proposed solutions. In fact, both logical and history attest to the damage their proposals can create. As Ludwig von Mises explained, in private property is the basis for joint action and cooperation, which all participants see other partners' success as a means for the attainment of his own. In sharp contrast to any us versus them, zero or negative sum view of social interaction, which treats someone's gains as others' losses. In capitalism, which is actually inconsistent with the government-created or enabled crony capitalism as we see around us, even those who would be tyrants, if given the opportunity, must focus their efforts on providing willing services to others to induce their voluntary cooperation." In contrast, the drive for power that animates these politicians who condemn a capitalism they plainly don't comprehend would increasingly turn others into their unwilling servants. Uh, End of the article. This whole issue of words and terminology, I wish it was in the realm of like, we can just put that behind us. Uh, But it seems to come up so flippin' often uh, that it's hard to just dismiss. Because depending on your perspective, right, like I, like I said, I accept the term capitalism. Uh, but when, when talking with uh, like left libertarians, right, the free market anti-capitalist people, uh, they pretend to not know what we're talking about, right? They pretend to not know how uh, the right anarchists, the a- anarcho-capitalists define the term. Right. And then they go, then they pick fights and go like, well, you're confused at best. Right. You, you are not a capitalist. You are a mutualist or you are a syndicalist or any number of like, you know, left libertarian words that mean the same thing. I go, all right, fine. Right. Whatever you want to call me, use your label. Um, I've chosen this one because it fits. Right. If you, and, you know, part of the discussion, uh, last week was, you know, the, the, the preconception of what the term capitalist, uh, means in society and also the preconception of what the term anarchist means in society. Right. And, uh, which is why I've always said, depending on my audience, right. I, I'm okay, uh, using different terminology, right. They go, well, capitalism has this, you know, is this, uh, uh, conflation with cronyism and crony capitalism and government capitalism, I go fine, right? That's why I don't call myself a capitalist in those circles, Right, That's why I have to append the anarcho-hyphen uh, to the term so that you know that I'm not talking about your preconception of what crony capitalism is or what capitalism is being uh, crony capitalism or government-induced capitalism. I go, I'm an ANCAP. Or I go, what is that? Well, it's, it's capitalism without all the bad stuff that you don't like, right? If, if you take the state and the government out of interfering in free markets what you're left with is what i would call you know the the anarchist capitalist system or the anarcho-capitalist system right why not and the same holds true for you know the 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 preconception of the bomb-throwing anarchists right and the left anarchists who destroy private property any chance they can get and you know the the you know, the mobs of, of black clad hooded hordes that run rampant in the streets just to get their violent uh, urges satiated. I go, fine. If you don't want to associate me with that group of people, um, then accept the hyphen, right? Cause I'm not, I am not a, a socialist or a communist. Uh, I, 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 view the economic system most, uh, dominant to be capitalism, right. As the, as the best means of economic exchange amongst people. So append the capitalist hyphen after the anarcho. So, you know, that I'm not one of those bomb throwing anarchists, uh, and I go, well, you know, and, and again, right. But if, I, but if, I, if I'm in a room full of libertarians, right. So, you know, the, like whatever, whatever your preconception of those folk are, right. I am definitely the anarchist right? Like there's no question about it. Uh, when they start talking about, uh, policies and voting and what we need to do to combat, you know, the, the onslaught of those who seek to harm us in the political realm, I go, I'm just, you know, no, I I have no desire to participate in that nonsense. So consider me an anarchist, uh, in, in so far as like, there is no one that rules over me. Um, and, and again, in, in other circles, and you know, if, if, if there's a room full of, you know, uh, political hacks, I guess, well, then they'll understand when I throw out the term libertarian, I'm libertarian leanings, I kind of believe that you guys should get the fuck out of my life and leave me alone, you know, all that other stuff. And so I just think that, you know, that the the labels are kind of a hang up and what we, uh, the collective we like to argue about, uh, and it's unnecessary because we always know I believe we always know what other people are talking about, uh, unless, you know, unless you really don't know your audience. Uh, and in which case, you know, if you do know your audience, then who cares? Let's talk about, you know, real solutions like this article, right? Capitalism is the solution, uh, and the most moral one that, you know, that there is, because when you have a capitalist structure, a capitalist system, a free market is allowed to operate, and they go like, "Well, if you want to be communist, then go be communist over there, and it's true, right? If if everything is voluntary, then you can form a voluntary commune, and and no one's going to bother you over there, right? Um, the opposite is not true, right? You you, it's prohibitively difficult uh, to have a capitalist." community i guess for lack of a better term um within the overarching communist structure because the communists will come and take uh a, a you know whatever you're creating over there as part of their larger system whereas the opposite is not true a capitalist system you can be a communist you can sort all your goods out over there voluntarily amongst uh voluntary members of the commune um uh, but you don't get to touch the productive you know the productive wealth of the capitalists over here. Um, same with the syndicalists, right? Like go ahead and have your factory, your worker owned factories and your worker owned co-ops, um, and do that within the capitalist structure and compete and see how well, um, your form of organization bears out in the marketplace, right? How well you can compete with other forms of, of organization within a business, uh, can, can, you know, can be organized. I guess I'm confusing my words here myself. Um, you get that. We get what I'm saying, like compete in the free market, uh, for organizational structure or for dominance in organizational structure and see if, you know, if your ideas of worker owned co-ops holds water, because if it is as good as you say it is, you should outcompete um, the hierarchical business owner, rich white guy, you know, type of business structure that everyone, you know, loves to, to speak out against um, and you'll be fine. And then you lead the example and more businesses will structure themselves like yours and so on and so forth. And you can voluntarily create your syndicalist society um, through example alone. But again... All that comes from the fact that you have the free market you have voluntary associations which is you know would uh, be available in a capitalist structure to do all that without the capitalist structure a lot of those things that people want to uh, sample with and try out and experiment with um, is forbidden and you know not allowed to to test out those theories uh, but the, the capitalist system being moral being voluntary Allows for those experiments to take place and to see a clear winner on how things can and should be organized going into the future. All right, moving on. Disturbing cases. Headline, disturbing cases show. The U.S. government is still conducting secret experiments and we are the lab rats. But these weren't the kind of monsters that had tentacles and rotting skin, the kind seven-year-olds might be able to wrap his mind around. These were monsters with human faces in crisp uniforms, marching in lockstep. So banal, you don't recognize them for what they are until it's too late. Uh, Ransom rigs Miss Peregrine's home for peculiar children. The U.S. government, in its pursuit of so-called monsters, has become itself a monster. This is not a new development, nor, it is, nor is it a revelation. This is a government that has in recent decades unleashed untold horrors upon the world, including its own citizenry, in the name of global conquest, the acquisition of greater wealth, scientific experimentation, and technological advantages, advances, all packed into the guise of the greater good. Mind you, there is no greater good when the government is involved. There is only greater greed for money and power. Unfortunately, the public has become so easily distracted by the political spectacle coming out of Washington, D.C., that they are altogether oblivious to the grisly experiments, barbaric behavior, and inhumane conditions that have become synonymous with the U.S. government. These horrors are being meted out against humans and animals alike. It's heartbreaking enough when you hear about the police shooting family dogs that pose no threat. Beloved pets that are quote-unquote guilty of little more than barking or wagging a tag or racing towards them in greeting at an alarming rate somewhere in the vicinity of 500 dogs per day. What I'm about to share goes beyond heartbreaking to horrifying. For instance, did you know that the U.S. government has been buying hundreds of dogs and cats from Asian meat markets as part of a gruesome experiment into food-borne illnesses. The cannibalistic experiments involve killing cats and dogs purchased from Colombia, Brazil, Vietnam, China, and Ethiopia, and then feeding the dead remains to laboratory kittens, bred in government laboratories, for the express purpose of being infected with the disease and then killed. It gets more gruesome. The Department of Veterans... The Department of Veterans Affairs has been removing parts of dogs' brains to see how it affects their breathing, applying electrodes to dogs' spinal cords before and after severing them to see how it impacts their cough reflexes, and implanting pacemakers in dogs' hearts and then inducing them to have heart attacks before draining their blood. All of the laboratory dogs are killed during the course of these experiments. And it's not just animals that are being treated like lab rats by government agencies. We, the people, have also become the police state's guinea pigs to be caged, branded, experimented upon without our knowledge or consent, and then conveniently discarded and left to suffer from the after effects. Uh, Back in 2017, FEMA inadvertently exposed nearly 10,000 firefighters, paramedics, and other responders to a deadly form of ricin during simulated bioterrorism response sessions. In 2015, it was discovered that an Army lab had been mistakenly shipping deadly anthrax to labs and defense contractors for a decade, while these particular incidences have been dismissed as accidents, you don't have to dig very deep or go very back in the nation's history to uncover numerous cases in which the government deliberately conducted secret experiments on an unsuspecting populace, citizens and non-citizens alike making healthy people sick by spraying them with the chemicals, injecting them with infectious disease, and exposing them to airborne toxins. At the time, the government reasoned that it was legitimate to experiment on people who did not have full rights in society, such as prisoners, mental patients, and poor blacks. In Alabama, for example, 600 black men with syphilis were allowed to suffer without proper medical treatment in order to study the natural progression of untreated syphilis. In California, older prisoners had testicles from livestock and from recently executed convicts implanted in them to test their virility. In Connecticut, mental patients were injected with hepatitis. In Maryland, sleeping prisoners had the pandemic flu virus sprayed up their noses. In Georgia, two dozen volunteering prison inmates had gonorrhea bacteria pumped directly into their urinary tracts through the penis. In Michigan, male patients at an insane asylum were exposed to the flu after first being injected with an experimental flu vaccine. In Minnesota, 11 public service employees, volunteers, were injected with malaria, then starved for five days. In New York, dying patients had cancer cells introduced into their systems. In Ohio, over 100 inmates were injected with live cancer cells. Also in New York, prisoners at a reformatory prison were also split into two groups to determine how a deadly stomach virus was spread. The first group was made to swallow an unfiltered stool suspension, while the second group merely breathed in germs sprayed into the air. And in Staten Island, children with mental retardation were given hepatitis orally and by injection to see if they could be cured. As the Associated Press reports, the late 1940s and 50s saw huge growths in U.S. pharmaceutical and healthcare industries, accompanied by a boom in prisoner experiments funded by both the government and corporations. By the 1960s, at least half the states allowed prisoners to be used as medical guinea pigs because they were cheaper than chimpanzees. Moreover, some of these studies, mostly from the 40s uh, to the 60s, apparently were never covered by the news media. Others were reported at the time, but the focus was on the promise of enduring new cures, while glossing over how test subjects were treated. Media blackouts, propaganda spin, sound familiar? How many government incursions into our freedoms have been blacked out, buried under entertainment news headlines, or spun in such a way as to suggest that anyone voicing a word of caution is paranoid or conspiratorial? Unfortunately, these incidents are just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the atrocities the government has inflicted on an unsuspecting populace in the name of secret experimentation. For instance, there was the U.S. military's secret race-based testing of mustard gas on more than 60,000 enlisted men. As NPR reports, all of World War II experiments with mustard gas were done in secret and weren't recorded on the subject's official military record. Most do not have proof of what they went through. They received no follow-up health care or monitoring of any kind. And they were sworn to secrecy about their test under threat of dishonorable discharge and military prison time leaving some unable to receive adequate medical treatment for their injuries because they couldn't tell doctors what happened to them. And then there was the CIA's MKUltra program, in which hundreds of unsuspecting American civilians and military personnel were dosed with LSD, some having the hallucinogenic drug slipped into their drinks at the beach in city bars at restaurants. As time reports, before the documentation and other facts of the program were made public, those who talked of it were frequently dismissed as being psychotic. Now, one might argue that this is all ancient history and the government today is different from the government of yesteryear. But has the US government really changed? Has the government become any more humane, any more respectful of the rights of the citizenry? Has it become more trans- any more transparent or willing to abide by the rule of law? Has it become any more truthful about its activities? Has it become any more cognizant of its appointed role as guardian of our rights? Or has the government simply hunkered down and hidden its nefarious acts and dastardly experiments under layers of secrecy, legalism, and obfuscations? Has it not become wilier, more slippery, more difficult to pin down? Having mastered the Orwellian art of doublespeak and followed the Huxleyan... Blueprint for Distraction and Diversion, are we not dealing with a government that is simply craftier and more conniving than it used to be? Consider this. After revelations about the government's experiments spanning the 20th century spawned outrage, the government began looking for human guinea pigs in other countries where clinical trials could be done more cheaply and with fewer rules. In Guatemala, prisoners and patients at a mental hospital were infected with syphilis, apparently to test whether penicillin could prevent some sexually transmitted disease. In Uganda, U.S.-funded doctors failed to give the AIDS drug, AZT, to all the HIV-infected pregnant women in a study, even though it would have protected their newborns. Meanwhile, in Nigeria, children with meningitis were used to test an antibiotic named Trovan. Eleven children died, and many others were left disabled. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Case in point, back in 2016, it was announced that scientists working for the Department of Homeland Security would begin releasing various gases and particles on crowded subway platforms as part of an experiment aimed at testing bioterror airflow in New York subways. The government insisted that the gases released into the subways by the DHS were non-toxic and did not and did not pose a health risk. It, it's in our best interest, they said, to understand how quickly a chemical or biological terrorist attack might spread. And look how cool the technology is, said the government cheerleaders, the, that scientists can use something called DNA tracks to track the movement of microscopic substance, substances in air and food. Imagine the kind of surveillance that could be carried out by government using trackable airborne micro. Microscopic substances you breathe in or ingest. Mind you, this is the same government that in 1949 sprayed bacteria into the Pentagon's air handling system and the world's largest office building. In 1950, special ops forces sprayed bacteria from Navy ships off the coast of Norfolk and San Francisco, in the the latter case exposing all of the city's 800,000 residents. In 1953, government staged mock anthrax attacks on St. Louis, Minneapolis, and Winnipeg I don't know, generators placed on top of cards. Uh, Local governments were reportedly told that the invisible smoke screens were being deployed to mask the city on enemy radar. Later experiments covered territory as as, wide-ranging as Ohio to Texas and Michigan to Kansas. In 1965, the government's experiments in bioterror took aim at Washington's National Airport, followed by a 1966 experiment in which Army scientists exposed a million subway New York City passengers to airborne bacteria that causes food poisoning. And this is the same government that has taken every bit of technology sold to us as being in our best interest. GPS devices, surveillance, non-lethal weapons, etc., and used it against us to track, control, and trap us. So no... I don't think the government's ethics have changed much over the years. It's just taking its nefarious programs undercover. The question remains, why is the government doing this? And the answer is always the same. Money, power, and total domination. It's the same answer no matter which totalitarian regime is in power. The mindset driving these programs have appropriately been likened to that of the Nazi doctors experimenting on Jews. As the Holocaust Museum recounts, Nazi physicians conducted painful and often deadly experiments on thousands of concentration camp prisoners without their consent. The Nazis' unethical experiments ran the gamut from freezing experiments using prisoners to find an effective treatment for hypothermia, tests to determine the maximum altitude for parachuting out of a plane, injecting prisoners with malaria, typhus, tuberculosis, typhoid fever, yellow fever, and infectious hepatitis, exposing prisoners to phosgene and mustard gas and mass sterilization experiments the horrors being meted out against the american people can be traced back in a direct line to the horrors meted out in nazi laboratories in fact following the second world war the u.s government recruited many of hitler's employees adopted his protocols embraced his mindset about law and order and experimentation and implemented his tactics in incremental steps sounds far-fetched you say read on It's all documented. As historian Robert Galately recounts, the Nazi police state was initially so admired for its efficiency and order by the world powers of the day that J. Edgar Hoover, then head of the FBI, actually sent one of his right-hand men, Edmund Patrick Coffey, to Berlin in January 1938 at the invitation of Germany's secret police, the Gestapo. The FBI were so impressed with the Nazi regime that, according to the New York Times, in the decades after World War II, the FBI, along with other government agencies, aggressively recruited at least a thousand Nazis, including some of Hitler's highest henchmen. All told, thousands of Nazi collaborators, including the head of the Nazi concentration camp, among others, were given secret visas and brought to America by the way of Project Paperclip. Subsequently, they were hired on as spies, informants, and scientific advisors, and then camouflaged to ensure that their true identities and ties to Hitler's Holocaust machine would remain unknown. All the while, thousands of Jewish refugees were refused entry visas to the U.S. on the grounds that it could threaten national security. Adding further insult to injury, American taxpayers have been paying to keep these ex-Nazis on the U.S. government payroll ever since. And in true Gestapo fashion, anyone who has dared to blow the whistle on the FBI's illicit Nazi ties has found himself spied upon, intimidated, harassed, and labeled a threat to national security. As if the government's covert taxpayer-funded employment of Nazis after World War II wasn't bad enough. U.S. government agencies, the FBI, CIA, and the military have since f- fully embraced many of the Nazis' well-honed policing tactics and have used them repeatedly against American citizens. It's certainly easy to denounce the full frontal of horrors carried out by the scientific and medical community within a despotic regime such as Nazi Germany. But what do you do when it's your own government that claims to be the champion of human rights, all the while allowing its agents to engage in the foulest Basis and most despicable acts of torture, abuse, and, exper- and experimentation. Excuse me. Uh, when all is said and done, this is not a government that has our best interest at heart. This is not a government that values us. Perhaps the answer lies in The Third Man, Carol Reed's influential 1949 film starring Joseph Cotton and Orson Welles. In the film, set in a post-World War II Vienna rogue war profiteer Harry Lyme has come to view human carnage with a callous indifference, unconcerned that the diluted penicillin he's been trafficking underground has resulted in the tortured deaths of young children." Challenged by his old friend, Holly Martins, to consider the consequences of his actions, Lime responds, And these days, old man, nobody thinks in terms of human beings. Governments don't, so why should we? Have you ever seen any of your victims, asked Martins? "'Victims,' responds Lyme, as he looks down from the top of a Ferris wheel onto a populace reduced to mere dots on the ground. "'Look down there, tell me. "'Would you really feel any pity if one of those dots stopped moving forever? "'If I offered you £20,000 for every dot that stopped, "'would you really, old man, tell me to keep my money? "'Or would you calculate how many dots you could afford to spare? "'Free of income tax, old man, free of income tax. "'The only way you can save money nowadays.'" Uh, As the author makes clear in his book, Battlefield America, The War on the American People, this is how the U.S. government sees us too when it looks down upon us from its lofty perch. To the powers that be, the rest of us are insignificant specks, faceless dots on the ground. To the architects of the American police state, we are not worthy or vested with inherent rights. This is how the government can justify treating us like economic units to be bought and sold and traded, or caged rats to be experimented upon and discarded when we've outgrown our usefulness. To those who call the shots in the halls of government, we the people are merely the means to an end. We the people who think, who reason, who take a stand, who resist, who demand to be treated with dignity and care, who believe in freedom and justice for all, have become obsolete, undervalued citizens of a totalitarian state that, in the words of Rod Serling, has patterned itself after every dictator who has ever planted the rippling imprint of a boot on the pages of history since the beginning of time. It has refinements, technological advances, and a more sophisticated approach to the destruction of human freedom." In this sense, we are all Romney Wordsworth, the condemned man in Serling's Twilight Zone episode, The Obsolete Man. The obsolete man speaks to the dangers of government that views people as expendable once they have outgrown their usefulness to the state. Yet, and here's the kicker, this is where the government, though it's monstrous inhumanity, also becomes obsolete. As Serling noted in his original script for the obsolete man, any state, any entity, any ideology which fails to recognize the worth, the dignity, the rights of man, that state is obsolete. Uh, how do you defeat a monster? You start by recognizing the monster for what it is. Uh, end of the article. So let's go back to labeling for just a second, because it's this type of article that when read all the way through, uh, makes me wonder why there's movements such as uh, Libertarians for Force Vaccinations right as if libertarians for trump uh wasn't bad enough during the the last election cycle uh now with the fear-mongering and the what about the kids and what about those who can't help themselves uh all of a sudden everyone uh must be forks forced to vaccinate uh themselves or their children or whatever uh else not be allowed in public spaces or whatever the consequence happens to be and you go well how with all of this knowing about all these experiments, tests, uh, tests, you know, um, and, and so on and so forth on individuals and groups throughout history. Why would any group who should be so anti-government and so anti-state advocate for state interference and state force, uh, for any medical procedure at all, uh, let alone vaccinations. Now, uh, I don't care too much about the, uh, pro versus anti-vax, uh, fight the, the tiff between the two. Um, to me, it always comes down to personal choice in, in so far as uh, neither group should be forced against their will, uh, to behave in a manner as the other, group. like anti-vaxxers shouldn't be forced to vaccinate, uh, and pro-vaxxers shouldn't be forced to associate uh with anti-vaxxers right you you can keep the two separated uh, as much as possible but you don't need the the force of the government to do it if if uh if those that vaccinate their kids uh, don't want to be around those that anti-vax well then they don't have to go into those public spaces either and if you want to make that an issue about who belongs and who can and can't go into and out of public spaces well then that's an argument that's a you know discussion that can't be had but so long as there's going to be public spaces everyone's allowed to go and it's your responsibility as an individual to take whatever steps you find necessary uh, to protect yourself from any dangers in those public spaces whatever side you happen to fall on so knowing again knowing that these uh, experiments have been run for decades upon decades and you go like no 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 you know some of some of you right some of you libertarians out there you go no 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 uh vaccine it's too important uh of of a of a public safety concern that some people not be allowed to vaccinate or not or be allowed to not vaccinate they must be forced they, we must have the state involved in protecting all citizens. Uh, and, and to me, it's just nonsense. So you now, if you didn't know uh, of all these experiments that have happened in the past, now you do know. And it just makes you wonder uh, what the big push is for all these other... Uh, government interference, right, government involved in healthcare. government involved in vaccination, government involved in food production, government involved in education, right, all these interferences by the state into the lives of everyday people uh, and what other experiments could be going on now that we're not aware of uh, that will be leaked out sometime in the future about what they were actually doing when the information becomes available or the research is done one way or the other. So uh, that's all I got to say about that. Moving on. <clears throat> can the g- headline can the government really print all the money at once uh, <laughs> i think the short answer is yes right yes they absolutely can uh the the consequences of that is what's up and you know up, up for debate uh or not even up for debate is you know usually known but we'll we'll talk about it can the government really print all the money at once uh in 1914 maximilian Byrne thought he had it made. After a long career as a successful writer and editor, Maximilian was ready to retire, and he believed he had more than enough savings to support himself. Unfortunately, Maximilian lived in the wrong country, Germany, to finance a comfortable retirement. Germany paid for its massive military expenditures in World War I, 1914-18, almost entirely by borrowing. The total tab came out to about $45 billion, more than $1 trillion in 2019 dollars. After all, Emperor Wilhelm II reasoned Germany would occupy great swaths of resource-rich territory in France and Belgium once it won the war. As we know, things didn't go well for Germany in World War One. By the time Germany capitulated in 1918, Maximilian's retirement stash was worth considerably less than it had been just four years earlier. In that period, the mark lost nearly 50% of its value. It fell from 4.2 to 7.9 marks per dollar. But that was only the beginning. By the end of 1919, the marked dollar exchange rate fell to 48 to 1. By the first half of 2021, it was 90 to 1. By the end of 1922, it was 7,400 to 1. Germany was now experiencing hyperinflation. In early 1922, Maximilian could buy a loaf of bread for 160 marks. By the end of 1923, that same loaf cost 200 billion marks. Meanwhile, the U.S. dollar mark exchange rate fell to 4.21 trillion to 1. Yet... Leading German economists of the day insisted there was no inflation. They argued there was actually a shortage of circulating currency. And to deal with the shortage, the printing press ran 24 hours a day to produce more paper money. Obviously, the great German hyperinflation didn't bode well for Maximilian's retirement. One day in 1923, he withdrew the balance of his savings, 100,000 marks. He purchased the most expensive item he could afford with it a subway ticket. Maximilian, now nearly 74 years old, took one last tour around Berlin. When he was finished, he returned home and locked himself in his apartment. Unable to afford food, he died of starvation. Economists attribute the cause of German hyperinflation to the country's effort to pay off its war debt, plus the enormous reparations owed the victors of the war. Germany had abandoned the gold standard in 1914. The money its Ministry of Finance ordered to be printed was backed by nothing other than the German dream. To pay back its war debt, Germany simply printed more marks and converted them to foreign currency. Of course, that practice only exacerbated inflation. In large part due to the catastrophic effects of hyperinflation on people like Maximilian, Germany entered a period of political polarization. A decade later, a demagogue named Adolf Hitler seized power. We all know what happened next. Hitler proceeded to rearm Germany in 1939, started World War II. Six years later, more than 70 million people were dead. This background came to mind when I read the latest initiative from Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Again! Again! and her proposal for a Green New Deal. One estimate for the 10-year cost of the initiative that includes Medicare for All, guaranteed Federal Jobs, and Food Security for All comes to a staggering $93 trillion. That's more than four times the already bloated federal debt of $22 trillion. To pay for it, Alexandria thinks that the government should simply open the money spigot. In other words, borrow as much as it wants and not worry about deficits or inflation. After all, the U.S. has been running budget deficits of $1 trillion or more annually in recent years with no significant inflation. Some economists agree with Alexandria that effectively deficits don't matter. Stephanie Kelton, a former economic advisor for Bernie Sanders, is a proponent of an old idea once called... Uh, chartalism that's been revamped and, re- and renamed modern monetary poly- theory. Uh, Kelton argues that like Germany in the 1920s, the U.S. can simply print money to pay for its financial obligations. What's not to like? After all, since the world abandoned all semblance of the gold standard in 1971, any government can literally create as much money as it wants out of thin air, and any government that issues its own currency can always pay its bills with the money it creates. If investors don't line up to buy $93 trillion in newly created federal debt, the Federal Reserve will buy it and simply add those assets to its balance sheets through the process of quantitative easing. That's what the Fed did a decade ago to ease the effects of the last global finance crisis. And Japan has done it for more than 20 years, with little to no inflation. Indeed, Japan now sports a debt-to-GDP ratio of 236%, the world's highest, even higher than Venezuela, at 162%. Compared to Japan, the U.S. debt-to-GDP ratio of only 108% seems a model of fiscal conservatism. MMT MMT advocates point to Japan, observing that if if that country can borrow enormous amounts of money for decades without inflation, there's no reason why the U.S. couldn't do the same. I agree to a point, but eventually the laws of supply and demand taught in first-year economics will reassert themselves. More money chasing the same amount of goods and services in an economy eventually results in an increase in the cost of those goods and services. The reason MMT might work temporarily is that notwithstanding isolated examples like Venezuela, the world is about to enter a profoundly deflationary environment, and nowhere are there more deflationary pressures on an economy than in China. I have previously suggested that an economic slowdown in China could throw the entire world into a recession. And as we learn in both the Great Depression of the 1930s and the financial crisis of 2007 to 2008, economic slowdowns are inherently deflationary. For instance, in the Great Depression, stock prices fell by nearly 90%, consumer prices fell by 25%, and commodity prices fell even more. The problem is what happens once inflation begins to rebound. Stephanie Kelton says when that happens, Congress should simply raise taxes. But that's highly unlikely. If you were a member of Congress and voters in your district were complaining about inflation, would you advocate for a tax increase? Hardly. You'd be more inclined to vote for a decrease in taxes to help your constituents increase their disposable income. At that point, the economy could enter an inflationary spiral with no easy way out. One thing is certain, as we approach 2020 presidential race, you'll hear a lot about MMT and how it can be a painless way to address stagnating incomes and economic inequality. It may be painless so long as deflation persists, but it won't be painless forever. Remember, Maximilian Byrne. Editor's note: Clearly, there are many strange things afoot in the world—distortion of markets, distortion of culture. It's wise to wonder what's going to happen and to take advantage of growth while also being prepared for crisis. Uh, end of the article. Funny how AOC always comes up uh, as an example of of ludicrous and bad economics, despite having uh, an economics degree. I forget what university, but it's out there. Uh, and, and again, uh, the, you know, to the, the German example, and to answer the, the question posed, uh, in the article is the answer is absolutely yes. Uh, the, the government can print as much money as they want. And it's the effects that get seen down the line, uh, that should have people, uh, up in arms and concerned, um, for, you know, what they're saving. It also disincentivizes saving when you don't know what's going to happen, um, or to, to move your, uh, money into other assets, which is why at least on this show, uh, we get into the cryptocurrency discussion, um, you know, frequently, I I try not to bring it up on every show. Um, but when, when it comes to, you know, monetary issues or, or, you know, advice on what you can do with your hard-earned labor, um, cryptocurrency always comes up. And personally, um, I'm big on Bitcoin. I know MC, you know, is, is an advocate for Monero and, um, here where we're at locally, uh, there's a lot of, uh, proponents for dash, uh, going around and, you know, the benefits of using the, th- those other currencies. Um, uh, but it's, uh, before crypto came up, I was, uh, you know, a, a fan of gold and silver. I have, you know, uh, rounds of silver cause I couldn't, couldn't afford the gold ones at the time. Um, but what I, I, the, the examples or the, uh, what I, what I advise, the advice that I give friends and family or whatever, um, uh, is always to transfer your federal reserve notes into more beneficial assets, like whatever that means to you. Um, and at one time it was, you know, gold and silver, and now it's cryptocurrency, um, despite the price fluctuations, um, I'm, I, am, you know, I believe, and I am hoping uh, that the cryptocurrencies will rebound uh, to you know, to the previous levels, and that my money is safer there uh, than in a bank, losing interest uh, every chance it gets. Um, so I, you know, I always, you know assets of higher value is always have described and people go like, well, I got to buy clothes. I got to put gas in my car. I go, well, that's, that's of higher value. That's why you make the trade. Um, it's what you do with the leftover liquidity, uh, that, you know, the, the stuff that's going to end up sitting in a bank account or sitting in a savings account, uh, that you, ha- that you're almost forced to figure out something better to do with it. Uh, the unfortunate thing is, you know, with, with lack of options previously, um, what people ended up doing with it is, you know, speculating in the stock market rather than looking for something, you know, solid, like a, rather than looking for a store of value or something solid, they, they are forced to speculate looking for uh, returns on investments in, in the stock market that uh, outpace the the losses of inflation when it's sitting in, you know, a bank account. And that, you know, that distorts things even further. Uh, and so now, like I said, again, we have, you know, we have cryptocurrencies that will will be uh, the money of the future, despite, you know, the, be, being fairly new uh, to most people and not accessible to all people. Um, still better option than, you know, what you're probably currently doing with your money, especially, you know, if you take the lessons of Maximilian to heart. Um, you can work, you can save, you can do all that labor and get all those Federal Reserve notes saved up only to have it disappear virtually overnight, right? Uh, you know, it took a few years, uh, but you get the idea. If it's losing value daily, um, you're not going to have much left. And, you know, one of the big questions when it comes to Bitcoin, especially in places like Venezuela, uh, is who's buying that stuff, right? Who's, who's selling Bitcoin in Venezuela to get, uh, you know, bolivars, right? Why, why would anyone trade a bolivar uh, or, or Bitcoin or a fraction thereof for a bolivar? When, you know, you almost have to flip it immediately, you know, someone's left holding the bag, uh, down there. I don't know who it is or why they would, you know, voluntarily do that, um, but the same up here, right? You know, you can, you got, you have to acquire those assets and those cryptocurrencies or whatever, you know, stock options or bonds or whatever, whatever it is, you feel the need to get, um, you have to acquire those now, uh, before it really starts to hyperinflate because you don't know who's going to be taking dollar bills, uh, if, and when that comes to pass. And you don't want to be holding, uh, too many dollar bills or federal reserve notes when that happens, because not many people are going to be taken and you'd have to, you know, know find a sucker on the corner to take those off your hands so as the government prints more as we you know go through the deflationary period you might be okay uh in dollars uh, but be careful on the exit because if they if they are going into that much debt to fund all their nonsense nonsense programs um the the hyperinflation on the other side isn't going to be good for anyone, uh, holding federal reserve notes. So, you know, get, get out of those and into something else now, While you still can and get a pretty good return on it. Uh, And that's all I have to say about that. All right, let's get into some fun stuff. Do you pay red light camera tickets? You're in the minority. Uh, Cracking down on red light runners in Texas has become big business. It has generated around $183 million for the state since red light cameras became legal in 2007. And the cameras have generated millions for cities as well. But the number of drivers no longer... But a number of drivers no longer pay those tickets. In Fort Worth last year, 224,307 tickets were mailed to motorists who ran red lights or didn't stop long enough before turning right. Of those, 106,580 were paid, and 116,074 were sent to collection agencies, City Records show for the 2018 fiscal year. This new data comes as proposals to turn the cameras off around the state are being considered by the Texas legislature. This definitely violates due process. If your accuser is a camera, you cannot face him in court. Uh, State Rep. Jonathan Stickland, the Bedford Republican, who is helping lead this effort, recently told a legislative committee, "'The most outrageous aspect of red light cameras to me is how it turns our legal system upside down. Uh, You are guilty until you prove yourself innocent.'" I think this is a major problem. Supporters, though, say these cameras make streets safer and generated, generate needed money for cities. I believe photo enforcement is the single most effective tool in changing driver behavior, Grand Prairie Police Sergeant Eric Hansen told the same legislative committee. After a decade of photo enforcement, our intersections are safer, and the number of crashes have been reduced. Red light cameras have been legal in Texas since 2007, and they've been in Fort Worth since 2008. After an offense, a $75 ticket is mailed to the car's owner. Fort Worth Tickets In Fort Worth, there are 58 red light cameras at 44 intersections. They operate 24 hours a day, taking photos and video photos. Video, uh, photos and video of vehicles running red lights the city contracts with vera mobility formerly known as the american traffic solutions to run the red light cameras the contract expires in 2026 the city collected 8.3 million from the tickets in fiscal year 2018 once expenses and contractor fees were taken care of and half of the remaining around was sent to the state fort worth kept 3.4 million dollars city records show Fort Worth used the money for traffic safety improvements, such as traffic signals, stop signs, crosswalks, and intersection improvements. Some Texas counties, such as Dallas, will flag accounts with unpaid red light tickets and prevent those vehicle registrations from being renewed until the tickets are paid. In Tarrant County, online registration will likely be blocked if red light tickets are left unpaid. But tax assessor collector Wendy Burgess has said anyone who has flagged account may go on to any of the eight Tarrant assessor tax collector offices and renew their registration in person, no matter how many unpaid red light tickets they have. Texas revenue. The amount the state receives from red light camera tickets fluctuates through the years, but reached an all-time high in the 2018 fiscal year when it collected $19.7 million. State dollars were earmarked for designated trauma facilities in county and regional emergency medical services and trauma care systems. Some money may also have been used by the Texas Higher Education Coordinated Board for graduate-level medical education or nursing programs, said Kevin Lyons, a spokesman for the Texas Comptroller's Office. Money has been pulled out of that account twice, $4 million in 2009 and $9 million in 2010, and sent to regional trauma centers. The rest of the money remains in an account with a revenue from court fines and driver responsibility surcharges. There's about $84.7 million in that account, said Kevin Lyons, a spokesman for the Texas Comptroller Office. Uh, end of the article. Wow, that's a quick end of the article, but end of it. I bring this up again because this this is clearly a revenue generating scheme, right? There was there was no mention of accidents, um, you know, caused by people running red lights. And if the you know, because if they run the red light and got to an accident, you know, it should still generate a ticket. And if it doesn't, uh, then we go back to the whole uh, no victim, no crime thing. And I am a I am a big fan of that concept, uh, and also of running red lights, uh, maybe not as often as I used to. Uh, because man, uh, it's, you know, it's prohibitively difficult to do that kind of stuff um, with the increased penalty of not having the driver's license, the permission slip uh, by the state to to be on the roads in the first place. So I, I, you know, I take a little bit more time on the road and to avoid that. Um, And I think this issue of not paying fines um, is another one worth looking into because uh you know this article is out of texas um but the virginia aclu keeps having victories uh over uh driver's license suspensions uh, and non-renewals over inability to pay court fines and it looks like it looks like they were getting those um policies or laws or whatever reversed so that people don't get their license taken away for for not paying fines uh because that's that's like the only that's the only threat they have over you uh and even myself the the biggest reason why i don't have the driver's license is because they suspended it and wouldn't let me renew it basically because of 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 unpaid court fines like there's, there's there's no other reason to withhold me from getting a license i haven't you know been in um you know, any egregious accidents, uh, you know, fender bender here and there. And I don't even remember what happened with that, but it was already after, uh, the license suspension. And there was nothing precluding that, uh, aside from, you know, I just didn't register my car, didn't, you know, pass safety inspection and they would ticket me and I would just throw the ticket away. Like what's, what's the worst they can do. Uh, and the worst they can do is prevent me from renewing my license. And then, and after that, who cares? Right. And I'm still on the road and now they have more problems to come after me and, um, again i 've said this before, busted twice or ticketed twice uh only convicted once for driving without the you know their permission slip uh and I do my best to to not worry about it. however, if I could get my license again um and it wouldn't impact my ability you know to to pay the fine uh, then i would I would consider it just for uh just for the convenience factor uh at this point you know there's 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 other there's other things to worry about and i go well this this has been my hill to die on um uh, mostly because it's the most convenient <laughs> the most convenient fight i can bring uh, i just don't do anything and then when they come harass me for having done nothing uh, then i can you know kind of make their life uh a living heck for a couple of hours for whatever however long it takes um But, yeah, you know, if if more people didn't pay the fines, like how many how many licenses can they suspend, and how many people can they pull over in jail and, you know, all the other fun stuff. Um, If we all hung together, then we wouldn't have to worry about hanging separately. And it's just another one of those things where even now uh, it's the it's the most danger I'm ever in uh, when I'm out and about is, you know, getting harassed by the cops while being on the road. Uh, But also, you know, the the one that I've been able to avoid the most, like I don't I don't I don't come into contact or interact with, um, you know, members of the state very frequently. And it's my goal to to continue that for as long as possible, Um, as long as they leave me alone and leave me unmolested. uh, I'm more than happy to not interact with them. But should they bring the fight, um, that's when, you know, that's when I have to put up my defenses as best I can. And it's nice to see uh, some adv- uh, activists, I guess, in the local community who have previously, you know, been all about peace, man, and working within the system to change the system, uh, finally coming around to the the idea and the concept that those who are in the system uh, are not worthy of peace uh, because all they do is bring about threats and violence. Um, and at some point and maybe some point soon, uh, if, if, you know, the peace advocates are finally uh, getting a little more upset about where the direction uh, of the state is going, uh, you know, in the, in their policies, uh, finally getting around to going, like, well, we do have the guns and if they're already attacking us, it's already self-defense. And I'm, you know, I'm curious to see uh, where that goes. Uh, I'm out of time. Thank you very much for listening. AnarchistExperience.com, Minds.com slash The Anarchist Experience, and Patreon.com slash The Anarchist Experience, if you'd like to contribute to the show financially. Uh, That's all I got. Talk to y'all next week. Uh, We wish MC the very best uh, in dealing with his family issues, and we hope to have him back real soon. Peace.